What a great song that is. What a great Savior it talks about. You know, that song is just an example of uh, singing the gospel. And, you know, we talk a lot about the gospel here at Cow Creek. The gospel is, in essence, the good news from God to men about what he has done to save sinners like you and me from his own judgment through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And that gospel, it's the foundation of the Christian church. It is through faith in the gospel that one becomes a member of the church. It is the gospel which shapes the way that the church is to live. And in addition to this, God has commissioned the church to proclaim, to herald, to declare the gospel to fellow sinners in all the earth so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation of the world might believe it and be added to their number. The great challenge for the Christian church, though, is that God has called them to believe the gospel, to live in accordance with the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel in a world that is hostile to the gospel. You know, Jesus famously told his followers in John 16 that the world would hate them and persecute them just as it had hated and persecuted him. And of course, if you know anything about history, or if you know much about the state of the church in the present, you know that's proven to be true. It's certainly true in our day. So, for instance, think of our own context. Being a largely pluralistic society, our society views the exclusive claims of the gospel as being intolerant, as being even dangerous. And because of the widespread scientific naturalism of our society, it views the miraculous claims of the gospel, the incarnation, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus as being laughably implausible while championing moral freedom, our society views the standards of holiness required in the scripture of those who believe the gospel to be socially regressive, backwards, even oppressive. And central truth claims of the gospel, like God the Father sending his eternal divine Son into the world, Jesus, to offer himself up unto death on a Roman cross in order to satisfy the penalty for their sin and bear the wrath they deserved in their place. I mean, that if you think about it, we're used to it, but that just sounds strange, even grotesque to people in our society today. At best... Christians in our society are viewed as sort of harmless, kooky people 
who blindly follow, you know, mythical tales uh, from a bygone superstitious era. But at worst, Christians are viewed in our society as dangerous religious fundamentalists whose influence in society really threatens peace and uh, is dangerous to the well-being of our society. You see, the challenge we face as Christians is that the gospel, and we just sung about, that we have come to believe so deeply, the gospel which determines the whole course of our lives as Christians, the gospel that we are called to proclaim with great earnestness to anyone who will listen, is largely rejected by the people that live in the world around us. And that leaves us with a very great question. How do we handle this rejection? And that's the question I want to address from Scripture this morning. For a variety of reasons, I'm taking a break this week from uh, the book of Joshua And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And this text, I want to direct your attention to it because it addresses this very question that I just posed to you this morning. So let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, the Word of God. Therefore, having this ministry... By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. How should we as Christians respond when the gospel is rejected by those around us? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul experienced the same kind of rejection to the gospel that we experience today. And this rejection of the gospel which Paul experienced is one of the major backdrops to his Corinthian letters. You remember, for instance, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, where he said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So there was something about the basic content of the gospel message which Paul was preaching that was fundamentally unpalatable to those who heard it. And this is why, as you read the book of Acts, um, you see Paul vehemently opposed and persecuted 
by both Jews and Gentiles in city after city in the Roman Empire, wherever he preached the gospel. As we come then to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're jumping into a section in the letter where Paul was defending his gospel ministry in the face of rejection and opposition to it. So in chapter 3, the text leading up to our passage, he had declared that his gospel ministry under the new covenant was even more glorious than the ministry of Moses under the old covenant. Why? Because the glory of the gospel surpassed even the glory that shone on Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai. But he points out that the Jews had been prevented from seeing the glory of gospel because they had rejected Christ. So a veil, as it were, lay over their hearts. And then you, the theme of the glorious gospel ministry of Paul being rejected by those around him comes out in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. In other words, just following our text. And there he spoke of, you remember, being afflicted in every way, persecuted, struck down as he carried out his gospel ministry. So our text comes in this context of Paul experiencing the same type of rejection of the gospel that we experience today. Right in the middle of those two sections, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, Paul tells us how he handled this rejection to his gospel. Look there again at what he says. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now we see from this that Paul's response to rejection of the gospel had two basic parts. There was a negative part. And a positive part. In other words, he talks about what he would not do. And then he talks about what he would do. So first of all, negatively, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Now, the language there of lose heart, it could either convey the idea of being discouraged. He could be saying that he didn't become discouraged. Or... It could convey the idea of cowardice. He could be saying, we don't become cowardly. Most likely, I think the latter is in mind there because of certain markers in the surrounding context where he had spoken about his confidence and boldness in gospel ministry. So he's saying, we are bold. We don't lose heart and become cowardly in response to rejection. You see, how did Paul respond when the gospel he preached was rejected? First of all, we see he didn't allow that rejection to make him timid, to make him cowardly about proclaiming the gospel. You know, the book of Acts really confirms this, doesn't it? There we see that he would often preach the gospel in a city until he was literally run out of town. And then what would he do? Go, man... This just isn't working. i got to figure something out. No. He just went right to the next town. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 14, we see that the Lystrans actually stoned him and dragged him out of the city and left him half for dead. But when God revived him, you remember what he did? He got up. Paul did not lose heart when the gospel was rejected. Oh, what about us, brothers and sisters? As our culture becomes increasingly hostile to the gospel and we anticipate more and more fervent rejection of it, what are we going to do? Will we be bullied into timidity and cowardice? Will we, as one commentator put it, retreat into silence and inactivity in order to avoid criticism and conflict? Will we hole up in our churches and preach the gospel to ourselves out of fear of opposition while all the wild people are perishing in in their sins all around us? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7-8, we just preached through this book, remember what he said, he said, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So what do we do when the gospel is rejected? Well, one thing we do not do is we do not lose heart. We do not become cowardly. So negatively, Paul refused to lose heart in the face of rejection to the gospel that he preached but then positively he said in the rest of the verse we see there verses one and two but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with god's word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god paul said here that he had completely renounced any kind of disgraceful and underhanded tactics that are so often used by those who sort of peddle their teaching among the churches. Men who are secretly driven by corrupt desires, perhaps for money or for prestige. What kind of disgraceful and underhanded tactics might he be referring to here? Well, he mentions two. He said, first, we refuse to practice cunning in our gospel ministry. You know what cunning means. You use cunning when you go out hunting to kind of sneak up on the animal. Well, Paul refused to use those types of shrewd methods, maybe flattery, gimmicks, intimidation, emotional manipulation in order to elicit a desired response to his preaching. Second, he also refused to tamper with God's word. In other words, he refused to just dilute down or maybe distort or take out of context or otherwise misrepresent the truths of the gospel in order to make it more attractive and palatable to listeners. Rather, Paul said, what do I do? By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, 
Paul's straightforward preaching of the pure gospel testified to the consciences of those who heard him that, hey, this guy doesn't have some hidden agenda. In fact, he had said the same thing about himself in a different way back in chapter 2, verse 17 of this letter. He said, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What an important example this is to us believers, isn't it? When the gospel is rejected by those around us, not only are we tempted to become fearful and to retreat into silence or inactivity, we're also tempted to deploy disgraceful and underhanded tactics in order to elicit the positive response that we want. You know, this happens all the time among evangelical churches. Some employ cunning methods. They try to make people more willing to accept the gospel by stirring them up into an emotional frenzy before they present it. They try to entice people into accepting the gospel by packaging it with all the trappings of our self-indulgent consumeristic culture. Others, more seriously perhaps, even tamper with the gospel message itself. The dilute it down. Sin becomes brokenness. And on and on. They present it without all of the offensive characteristics of the gospel in order to make it appear more attractive, less threatening. Or they might just flat out change and distort the gospel. Either taking away from it or adding to it. For instance, presenting a gospel that makes no mention of sin or of God's judgment. That is what we're being saved from. All in order to accommodate it to modern cultural assumptions. And brothers and sisters, I know that some Christian leaders who would fall into these categories are genuine, well-meaning Christians who are just tragically misguided in their methodology. But let's be frank, many who do employ these tactics are simply interested in promoting themselves and even more worse, padding their own pockets along the way. But Paul's example here stands against all of these things. Paul said, look, I renounce such disgraceful, underhanded ways. Instead, I just openly proclaim the pure gospel in a straightforward way. Why? Because I'm doing it in the sight of God. And brothers and sisters, this is what God requires of all of us to whom he has entrusted the gospel. He doesn't give us the gospel and say, kind of fix it up and do the best you can with it. He says, I'm entrusting this to you. Proclaim it openly. I'll be watching. It is a given that the gospel is going to be offensive to those around us, isn't it? It's a given that most people are going to reject it when they hear it preached. But we're not to shrink back in fear in the face of this rejection, nor are we to try to compensate by 
employing manipulative tactics or you know tampering with the gospel in order to make it more palatable we are simply to continue proclaiming the truth of the gospel in a clear open straightforward manner with confidence and boldness in the sight of god that should be characteristic of all our gospel ministry right whether it's me up here preaching you sharing the gospel with a neighbor, uh, teaching the gospel to the young people in the classes, etc. So how should we as Christians respond when the gospel is rejected by those around us? Well, we should not lose heart, but continue to proclaim the gospel in an open and straightforward manner. Now, having said that, you might legitimately ask the question, why? Why should we continue to proclaim the gospel without losing heart when it is rejected by so many of those around us what gives us the confidence to do such an audacious thing right i mean usually if you're doing something and it's just not working someone comes along and says listen buddy you got to change course here but why not in this case why should we continue to do this Well, this is exactly the subject which Paul went on to address in verses 3 through 6. So in verses 1 through 2, Paul had explained that he did not lose heart when his gospel was rejected, but continued to proclaim it openly. And now look at verses 3 through 6. He explained why he had the confidence to do that. And he gives two reasons. And the first is there in verses 3 through 4. He says, Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, people are prone to think in our day that if an idea, if a message is widely rejected by the culture, then it must be wrong, right? But notice the striking difference in Paul's logic. He says... I'm committed to preaching the gospel. And if it is veiled, that is, if people are prevented from seeing that it is true, then the problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with those who are rejecting it. Notice first his description of the gospel down in verse 4. He spoke of the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, Paul understood the gospel to be, in a sense, like a light whose radiant beams are shining forth as it's proclaimed, right? And what is it shining forth? Well, he says, the glory of Christ. And then he adds that Christ is the perfect image of God. So, reveals God In Jesus Christ. And that light is glorious. It's like a light shining into a dark world. That's what the gospel is, Paul says. But Paul here spoke of certain people whom he called those who are perishing, which I think is a term for him, those who are not Christians, not saved. Why? Because he actually said back in chapter 2, verse 15, he contrasts those who are perishing with those who are being saved. So those who are perishing are those who are at present not converted, not saved. 
And he said that when those who are perishing, the unbelievers around him, when they come into contact with the gospel, that is, when they hear it preached, when the sound of its message bounces off their eardrums, they are not able... I, let's use a better... When the light of the gospel hits their eyes, they're not able to see it for what it really is. It is a light, but they can't see it. When they hear the gospel, they don't perceive its glorious light as a revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he says the gospel is veiled to them. They have something over their eyes. Their ears are stopped up. And that's why they're presented, prevented from seeing its glory. They're like a blind person. Why? Well, then Paul tells us the problem is not with the gospel. The gospel is a glorious light. The problem is with the spiritual condition of those who are perishing. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So do you see the argument here? Paul's saying, look, as I go around and I preach the gospel, it's like a light in a dark place. But the unbelievers around me, they can't see it. And the reason they can't see it is because the God of this world, I take that to be a reference to Satan, a very interesting way of referring to him, and there is some debate about this, but I think that's a reference to Satan. He describes Satan as having blinded their eyes so that they wouldn't be able to see it. Now, if you zoom out from this text, right, and you take a broader look at what the Scripture says about the spiritual condition of those who are outside of Christ, those who are unbelievers, not saved, you see that this notion of spiritual blindness it's filled out in an even more robust way in other parts of Scripture. So, for instance, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 14, Paul had said, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, in our natural condition, we can't understand and accept the gospel like we ought, like we ought because it's spiritual and it takes spiritual perception but we are in the flesh devoid of the spirit ephesians 4:18 says of unbelievers that they are darkened in their understanding it's like their mind is in darkness they are alienated from the life of god and you say why because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart there is a willful refusal to believe. Or think of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, where Paul talks about the revelation of God in nature, and he says that mankind and their natural condition, they suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. They push it down like a beach ball in a pool, and they exchange it out for a lie. So that, he says, they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish heart is darkened. They refuse to accept the truth about God, so they have a willful blindness. Now, this truth about the spiritual blindness, which is the condition of all unbelievers, is so critical for us to understand because sometimes we think 
man, if I could just present the gospel to the unbelievers around us with enough clarity and skill and persuasiveness and with a winsome enough attitude, they will believe it. Or if we use the right methods, if we put them in the right um, environment, we, we can present it in such a way that they will believe it. Or if we hear all their objections and we give them, you know, brilliant enough answers, if we understand how to, you know, do good apologetics, then they will believe it. But Paul says, you can stick that light of the gospel in all of its brilliant glory right in front of their face. You can wave it about. You can do anything you want. Look, look, look. Left to himself, left to herself, an unbeliever will always reject it because they can't see it for what it is. Now, this is why, brothers and sisters, we should be wholeheartedly committed to that old doctrine of what is called irresistible grace. Because we know that an unbelieving man or woman is, if they're ever going to see the glory of Christ in the gospel, God has to do something in them first, right? That God has to first step in and do a sovereign work of regenerating their soul, of opening up blind eyes, of opening up deaf ears, that is, spiritually speaking. And if God doesn't do that first, then a human being is going to remain helplessly blind to the glorious light of the gospel. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, John 3.3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let's go back and consider Paul's point in all of this, right? This is the first reason that he gave why he does not lose heart when the gospel is rejected. But he continues to boldly preach it in clear, straightforward ways. The reason was that he knew that when people reject the gospel, it's not because there's something wrong with the gospel. It's not like you have a flickering flashlight here. What's wrong with this thing? If we could just get it to turn on, then people would see. No, it's like fully working. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. It is a glorious light. The reason why people reject it is because they're spiritually blind. Now, a preacher of the gospel doesn't have any control over that factor. All he can do is just continue shining the light, continue holding the glorious light of the gospel before their eyes, knowing, as it says in Acts 13, 48, that all who are appointed to eternal life will believe. Brothers and sisters, this truth should have the same effect upon us, shouldn't it? It should encourage us as a church in our public, in our private ministry of the gospel. It should encourage us as individual Christians in our personal evangelism to confidently persevere in just clear, straightforward proclamation of the gospel without distortion, without dilution, without fancy packaging or manipulative methodology. Because we know that giving the gospel a makeover or presenting it in a more attractive way is not going to remove a person's spiritual blindness. 
And we know that if God, who is the only one who can remove that spiritual blindness, if he opens deaf ears and opens blind eyes, then all that other stuff doesn't matter anyway. This is why, by the way, when people put pressure on you to lead others to Christ and they gauge your effectiveness as an evangelist in terms of how many people you led to Christ, that's just nonsense, isn't it? I mean, that kind of thing, it confuses evangelism with the results of evangelism. But evangelism is just simply heralding the gospel, announcing the good news, proclaiming the gospel, and that you can control. That is our responsibility to do. But we don't have any control over who believes the gospel, right? That's God's prerogative. He alone to the gospel. And so we have to be content to leave that matter to him. This truth also shows us why prayer is an essential part of God. If we're actually blind, then we know that our evangelism will do them no good unless God transforms their souls. So what do we do? Well, we do have to labor and strive in gospel ministry with all our might. But we must also pray with all our might for God to grant repentance and faith to those who hear it. Because that's beyond our power to give. By the way, just a little practical sidelight for all of us who are going to be involved with sharing the gospel to children in a couple weeks at Vacation Bible School. Remember this. Don't just prepare to be ready to share the gospel with them. Do that, but also pray that God would open blind eyes, take out hearts of stone. Our desperation for him to work should lead us to consistent, fervent prayer. And then finally, this truth also liberates us from becoming disheartened and discouraged by widespread rejection of the gospel in our society. You know, Paul experienced the same thing. And he didn't lose heart because he had this category in his mind to understand what was happening. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, brothers and sisters, on the one hand, we should expect gospel success because Christ has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he has said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So we can expect gospel success, but we can also expect gospel rejection, at at least because of this text. When people reject the gospel, it shouldn't surprise us and throw us into confusion or cause us to lose confidence in the gospel. Like, what's wrong with this thing? The rejection of men does nothing to discredit the glory of the gospel. It is the normal response of the natural man. If we are evangelizing, we should expect some rejection. If we are evangelizing, what we should be doing is just simply holding out the gospel before the faces of men like a great light. Our goal should be just as clearly and straightforwardly as possible to explain it, and then we pray. The risen Lord Jesus would open blind eyes to respond to it in faith. So why should we continue to proclaim the gospel without losing heart when it's rejected by so many around us? 
Well, because when people reject the gospel, the problem is with them, not the gospel. So we don't lose heart and become discouraged about the gospel. That's not the problem. But there is one more reason that we see in our text why we shouldn't lose heart when the gospel is rejected, but continue to openly proclaim it. In verse 5, Paul introduced a second, I think powerful reason, why he did not lose heart when the gospel was rejected. Look what he said. He said, For we pro- what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Let me put it this way. Paul didn't lose heart when his gospel was rejected because this wasn't a personal thing. The gospel wasn't about him. Right? If I'm going in to sell myself to someone and they reject me, well, that's disheartening. But this isn't about me. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he preached the gospel, he wasn't promoting himself. He, wasn't pro- he was proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and that he was simply a servant of men for Jesus' sake. By the way, that is a biblical philosophy of pastoral ministry, for instance, in a nutshell. Every pastor should be focused on promoting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, according to the gospel. And upon presenting himself to people as their servants for Jesus' sake. Whenever a pastor begins using his position in a church to subtly promote himself instead of Christ, Whenever a congregation begins adoring and honoring their pastor instead of Christ. Whenever a church becomes basically a personality cult centered around the pastor, something has gone terribly wrong. But what had caused Paul to adopt this mindset? How had Paul come? to dedicate his life to proclaiming this gospel that Jesus Christ was Lord and to simply proclaiming himself as the servant of others on behalf of Christ. Well, look, he tells us there in verse 6, he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me just sum that up for you. Paul came to have this mindset because he himself had experienced the divine work of illumination in his soul. At one time, he had been blind to the glory of the gospel. And now God had opened his eyes to see. I want you to notice the way in which Paul describes this divine work within his soul. Did you see it? First, notice he used the same imagery of light, which he had used to describe the gospel back in verse 4. He described the gospel as light, which radiates forth the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, right? So the gospel shows you Christ, and in the face of Christ, you see the glory of God because Christ is the image of the invisible God. But then... Instead of being blinded to this light, like those who are perishing, right? 
You hold the light up, they can't see anything because they're blind. Instead of that, Paul said that God had caused this light to shine into his soul. That is, in his case, God had removed his hardness of heart, which prevents a person from really seeing the gospel for what it is. And he had caused Paul's soul to behold the true glory of the gospel. How many of you maybe have had the experience of growing up in the church and you were heard the gospel so many times, right? And it was just like, bing, bing, it just bounced off your eardrums. It never made a difference. And then one time, the Lord like opened your eyes and that time you heard the gospel, it filled your whole soul with light and you saw the glory of Christ in the gospel. Paul's saying, that's what happened to us. Paul, God opened his heart to perceive that the gospel truly was revealing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And his response was he repented and he believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. But then even more, I want you to notice specifically how Paul described this inner illumination of his soul, which he'd experienced. He said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness... By the way, you young people, you kids, if I were to say, let there be light, what chapter of the Bible would you think of? Genesis 1, right? Caroline, you knew that. I know you knew that. Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God God said, let there be light. Well, that's what Paul's referring to here. He's saying, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light. That same God has created light in the darkness of my soul. In other words, he's using creation language. He's describing this inner illumination in which God opened his heart to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That was actually like a divine work of creation. Except it wasn't part of God's original creation. This isn't Genesis 3. This is part of God's new creation. In fact, it's very interesting that in the very next chapter, Paul said this very thing more explicitly. He spoke there in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. If you want to flip over your page and look, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. He's speaking here of how God had done a work in the souls of believers to change the whole way they view Jesus Christ. And he described it, he said this, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. You know, as a Pharisee, Paul thought Jesus was a heretic who deserved to be stoned. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, brothers and sisters, let me just sum this up. The gospel which God has caused us to believe, this gospel which God entrusted us to proclaim, this gospel which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, this gospel is the dawning, as it were, of the light of God's new creation. As the people of God proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, It is like the light of the new creation breaking into the darkness of this present evil age. And every time 
God causes that light to penetrate the blind eyes of a sinner and fill their hearts with light so that they repent and they believe in Jesus Christ. That is a manifestation of the power of God doing a work of new creation in that person's soul. Now do you see why Paul doesn't lose heart when the gospel is rejected? Now do you see why he just continued to preach it boldly? He didn't lose heart because he had come to understand what this gospel was. He'd come to understand that the gospel was the very light of God's glory. Like new creation, like God saying, let there be light. And it's breaking forth into the darkness of this present evil age. And he knew this because he himself had had the blinders removed and had this light flood into his soul. And he'd been changed by it. He's a new creation. The old is gone. new has come. I mean, how could you not preach it, right? How can we not preach it? How can we possibly succumb to fear and cowardice and hide this glorious gospel from a darkening world? Well, I say, how could we possibly? We all do that, right? But you see, this is meant to bring us to repentance and help us to grow in boldness. We have to, like Jesus said, it's a great illustration, isn't it? Every child can understand. There was no electricity in those days. You just had like candles, right? And Jesus said, okay, when you light a candle, what do you do with it? Do you put it in the closet, in a cupboard? And the children are like, no. What do you do with it? You put it up on a stand so all can see, right? That's what we do with the gospel. Yes, many are going to reject the gospel. Being blinded by Satan from seeing its glory. Being hardened by sin from accepting it. But there will be some in whom God will cause the light of the gospel to shine into their souls and to bring about a new creation such that they will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and they'll be saved. Isn't that exciting? Think about someone in your life right now who you would love to see that happen to and resolve to not be too timid to share the gospel with them. So why should we continue to proclaim the gospel without losing heart when it's rejected? Because through the preaching of the gospel, the light of God's new creation is breaking into the world and we have experienced this firsthand in our own souls. So the great challenge for the Christian church is that God has called us to believe in, to live accordance with, to proclaim the gospel in a world that largely rejects it. How do you handle that rejection? We don't lose heart, but we continue to proclaim the gospel in an open, straightforward way. And we can do this because, number one, we know that when people reject the gospel, the problem's with them, not the gospel. And number two, because through the preaching of the gospel, the light of God's new creation is breaking into this world. And we have experienced that firsthand. But finally, just let me close by doing what I've been preaching about all morning. Let me proclaim the gospel to everyone in this room in an open and straightforward way so that anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ might have an opportunity to see the light of the glory of God and put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So first of all, the Bible is clear that every one of us was born a member of a fallen human race which is under God's condemnation 
for their sin. And each of us has demonstrated that fallen human condition by living a life of sin and living a life of rebellion against God. And because of that, God's judgment, His righteous judgment, He's a holy God, and His holy wrath abides over our heads. That we live under the shadow of His judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God didn't leave us in that horrible condition, but he so loved us as sinners that even in our fallen state, he sent his eternal divine son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to save us from our destruction. And so God the Son became a man, Jesus Christ, and he did everything that was necessary to secure our redemption from sin and death if we would put our faith and trust in him. So, He accomplished our redemption by his life. He obeyed God perfectly on our behalf. He accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross by dying for our sins in our place. And he accomplished our redemption in his resurrection by rising from the dead so that we might have the hope of resurrection life in him. And the invitation which the Lord Jesus has extended to everyone here in this room is that if they will repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they will be forgiven and declared righteous in His sight and granted eternal life with Him today. So I leave you with that most important appeal. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the glory of the Gospel and how You have just as Jesus went around opening the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, how you have done that to us in a spiritual way, how Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has taken out our heart of stone and opened our blind eyes and deaf ears, and he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel so that we might see the glory of God in the face of Christ and that the light of the gospel has filled our souls. And we have become willing followers of him. We pray, O God, that you would give us boldness and a zeal to openly proclaim that gospel to those around us who need to hear it in your sight. And we pray for anyone here that who is still in that state of spiritual blindness, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you, like you did with Lydia, would cause their hearts to respond to the gospel so that they might be saved. And Lord, we pray these things, both for our good, we are beggars who need the bread of life, and also for your glory, as it will all resound to the praise of your glorious grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.